Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation No change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am STD Noor, and I must say, first of all, rest in power, Bertolucci. The Conformist is one of my favorite movies ever. Sorry to hear that he has left us. Thanks to all of you who donated and pledged to last week's show, um, whether you did it um, on 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 the air, um, so to speak, uh, pledged and donated right here to the show, or you did it on uh, Richelle's Facebook fundraiser on my or my Facebook um, fundraiser. Thank you so much. Uh, this hour raised a lot of money, and I understand that the station as a whole uh, made it well, and so we're ever closer to being able to buy these two soundboards that we need in order to continue making it, uh, broadcasting here on this um, station. And uh, thanks to Richelle and Karma for uh, subbing for me while I uh, was in Israel visiting family and friends. We are going to talk about money today, in fact, or rather unchecked wealth and the people who own it, as well as what it does to the rest of us. And um, to do that with us is Michael Mechanic, who was born and raised here in Madison. He is a longtime senior editor at Mother Jones Magazine and author of Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. Before he became a journalist, he studied biology and biochemistry at UC Berkeley and Harvard. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Los Angeles Times, Wired, and Late Industry Standard Magazine, where he was an editor and senior writer. Michael joined us today from his current home at Oakland, California. And hello, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Our home team won last night in the NBA playoffs, so... Oh, happy. well, congratulations. I, I wouldn't know that, but I'm sure you're happy <laughs> about it. Um, so, I'm happy to be talking to my folks in Madison. Yes, yes. I, I have nostalgia for the city. For, for a good reason. It's a yes. great place, really. I, I As I said, I'm just back from Israel where everybody asks me, where is Madison? And um, so I had to tell them where it is and what a great place it is. And also in Toronto, where I got stranded for a while, I had a conversation with a guy from D.C. who heard that I was from Madison and said, oh, yeah, my sister lives in Cincinnati. That's nearly right. And I had to tell him how sorry I feel for the people on the coasts who have no idea about wonderful places like Madison. It's true. People ignore Madison to their detriment, really. To their detriment. And, you know, I hope not too many more come here because already uh, we're paying too much for housing and such because people have been coming here, have found what a great place it is. In any case, jackpot, how the super rich really live and how the wealth harms us all. What, uh, what made you want to research this issue and write about it? Well, at first, I have sort of interested just in how in our attitudes towards wealth and the, the sort of collective desire of people to become rich and what that would actually mean for people who, you know, either won a lottery or came into a windfall, a large windfall in some way, and sort of thinking about how that would change your whole existence. 
it seems like a lot of Americans sort of want, you know, they, they dream about this. And yet um, we live in this society that's becoming more and more segregated by wealth. And the, the as one source put it, the rungs of the wealth ladder are stretching more and more, especially as you move towards the top. So, you know, what used to be that a millionaire was wealthy and now people are, have a million bucks and they feel poor uh, because there's these guys running around with 50 billion. Uh, and, you know, it, looking at sort of the, the distorting effect of great wealth on our democracy, and we're seeing some of the effects of that now. So I sort of wanted to see sort of in this day and age what what it meant to be rich in America and and what this inequality is doing to all of us. And so I sort of sought to, to look at this, not through, you know, people have written a lot of books about inequality where they kind of focus on just sort of the, the academic side of it. But I wanted to go talk to very wealthy people and talk about their experiences and also and sort of see how they live and how they see the world, because it's not something we hear very much. Yeah. So uh, just to clarify, when when we talk about wealth in the United States, what are we talking about? Who is wealthy? How much do they have? Okay, well, a one percenter, um, according to the latest numbers, uh, the t- in order to get into the one percent, you have to have 5.6 million as a household. Um, but that's not the average wealth. The average wealth always skews upward within these groups because the people at the top of each group have so much more wealth than the people at the bottom. So to get into the 1%, you need 5.6 million. The average 1%er has 26.7 million. And then if you, as you move up, it gets more and more absurd. You know, the 0.1%ers have an average of 134 million. The 0.01%ers have 687 million. Um, and by the time you know you get into the 0.001%, just to get into that, you need 805 million. And there's 1,800 families roughly with that kind of wealth. But they're out, you know, the average wealth in that group is in the billions. Yeah, so when we get to the Jeff Bezos's and um, Elon Musk and, and such, how much do they have each? Well, you know, it, it, it's really funny because it fluctuates so much by the day. Mm. That Forbes has something called the real-time wealth tracker. And you can look at what happened the previous day, and it'll be, say, like, Elon Musk down $17 billion. <laughs> oh. Jeff, Jeff Bezos up $4 billion. And you're like, these guys make and lose more money in a day than most of us ever could possibly dream of having in a lifetime. It is just sort of another day for them. Mm-hmm. So I mean, money, money becomes completely meaningless at that level. Yeah, and and that is something that um, is beguiling to me. I I, I really want to ask you right away, since you have talked with very rich people, and I, I don't think you talked with Bezos and um, Musk. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you you did talk with very rich people, and and uh, really I should add the Cokes to that small list that um, I'm talking about. And I've I've been just forever wondering when when people have so much and really the Cokes I think are the um, the the real symbol of what I'm talking about. Though the rest of them obviously are doing um, at least some of the same. But when you have so much more money than you could ever spend, right? You have numerous homes, planes, yachts. Uh, you own a bunch of politicians. Why do you still want to take food out of the mouth of babies and their mothers when you lobby for and uh, for terrible? policies and laws, you support extreme right organizations and causes, you buy more politicians. What What is it about having so, so much and yet hating everybody else and, uh, and, and wanting more all the time? What, what, what did you learn from talking to these people? Well, you're sort of asking a bunch of different questions there because yes, sorry. You know, not, not all super wealthy people are like the Cokes, right? Right. But there, there is a tendency among, you know, guys like Bezos and Musk, whatever their, you know, ideologies are to, I mean, what I ask myself is why would you, why would you need to continue 
if you're worth 150 billion dollars, right? Why would you why would why don't you just get out and try to do some good in the world as opposed to keep building more companies and whatever? Well, that's what these guys do and I think at that level it becomes sort of record keeping to them. They you know, it becomes kind of a, you know, a measuring contest so to speak uh where they just want to be they want to keep playing a game. It's a game at that at that level. It's it's just they're not thinking of it in any rational way. Um, they just are keep doing what they're doing. Now the Cokes obviously have this ideology that they were raised with, you know, their fam, their their parents, their father. I don't know. Um, I have a colleague who wrote a whole book on the Cokes, and of course, Jane Mayer has written on the Cokes. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this sort of very baked in libertarian, you know, free enterprise ideology that they have you know, put, put a lot of money into funding the spread of this ideology and the hard right stuff. I mean, I have a section in my book where I talk about philanthropy and it's, you know, it's uses and misuses. And one thing that's just always baffles me is that you can have these organizations essentially spreading dissent, spreading election fraud lies, things like this. And these are publicly subsidized foundations and charities. They're considered, they're considered charities and they don't pay taxes. And when someone donates to those uh, organizations, they get to take a a tax deduction. And these are groups that are working against the public interest. And in some cases against the interest of democracy itself, like the Bradley foundation is one uh, big for Milwaukee here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and we and we let this happen. I mean, it it's astounding to me. Yeah, we that, don't. You know, that, that groups that are spreading the big lie are actually government subsidized. Right, right, and that's that's what I was going to say. We don't just let it happen. We pay with our tax money for it, don't we? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so still, um, the Cokes maybe are unique in the level of uh, zealotry in which they want to take uh, money out of everybody and to, to decimate uh, whatever's left of the so-called um, welfare um, welfare society, but still you look at uh, Bezos, for example, and the guy's busy fighting unions. What? How, how will it harm him if people who are working for him had uh, better conditions and were paid a little more? I mean, when he can lose, what did you say, 17 billion a day or whatever, how, how, what, what, how would it affect him if people actually could um, have good working conditions? Why, would, why is I he think fighting it would, them? It would help him. <laughs> I think it would help him. In fact, one of my, the, the guy who I start the book with is a guy named Nick Hanauer, who was an early Amazon investor. Uh, he's no, I don't think he's any longer an Amazon investor, but he, he um, knew a friend of a friend of Jeff Bezos and got, got to know him and thought he was brilliant and offered him, he, he said, look, if you ever do a company, I want in. And so lo and behold, Bezos starts Amazon. He's looking around for investors. So this guy, Nick Hanauer, gives him, puts up $45,000. He gets 1% of Amazon for $45,000. And so when Amazon goes public, he goes off on his honeymoon, all of a sudden he sees his wealth just going crazy as Amazon stock rises. And all of a sudden he's just incredibly rich. So, but this guy is a pretty liberal guy. He decides he's gonna dedicate himself to fighting inequality. So now he's sort of at odds with Jeff Bezos. Uh, But the argument that he goes around making, he he goes he he this guy's worth close to a billion dollars, and he goes around making a capitalistic argument for uh, for fighting inequality. And he's basically his point is that if you are undercutting people so they they, they struggle paycheck to paycheck, well they're not going to be able to buy your products, are they? Mm-hmm. If if you, if you're a businessman, especially something like Amazon, you want people to buy from you. And if you're not paying them enough that they can 
have any discretionary income, you know, that's bad for you. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually an argument that I made too. Um, but so you you said that for people like Bezos and and uh, Musk and and such, it's about uh, competition and about doing more and more and succeeding more and more, which to me reads uh, at least to some degree as what we think of as toxic masculinity. And of course, we've seen it in that idiotic. Uh, uh, space race um, recently, but I also I I want to talk about greed. What is the the people that you've talked with? Um, uh, is part of the deal here just greed? This this disease it looks to me like that uh, makes people want more and more and more, never mind how much they have. You know, they would not see it as greed. Uh, at no, least most of the ones not. I talked to, right? They would see it. I mean, if you wanted to psychoanalyze it, I would say it's insecurity and fear. There, there is people have a fear of losing what they have, and so they always want to be accumulating. It's almost like the human condition. You know, we're squirrels. We want to save all the nuts. Um, and I mean, there's there's been research. I actually wrote about it recently for Mother Jones. Uh, th there's research that shows that people in an advantage group will will fight to keep that advantage, even if it means losing losing in absolute terms. So they would rather take a financial hit than give money to people with less than them to you know bring them closer together. It's really interesting. Uh, it's a it's a very tribal instinct. And I think once people get wealthy, they become part of this sort of tribe, in a sense. Uh, there's a loss of empathy for the the disadvantaged groups. And even, you know, I, I write about something called income segregation in, uh, you know, in the book. Yeah. And in fact, you know, think about, you know, when I lived in Madison, it was like Maple Bluff. That's where the rich people lived, like the really rich people lived in Maple Bluff. It's like they're totally isolated, right, from the rest of the city, in a way. Um, people move out of mixed wealth areas when they have money, and they move to these wealth havens all over the place. And sometimes it's a, a whole separate community. Sometimes it's part of a city. Uh, but then they don't have any interaction with the people with, who have less. And there's becomes an empathy gap when that happens. And you can really see it because, like, in... In areas where, um, in areas where there's more of this inequality, there's also a lot less social mobility. If, if you have intermixing between wealthy and less wealthy people, you have a much stronger community and social fabric. And that's another thing. You know, I, I argue that the sort of the the breaking down of the social fabric is in part due to inequality, and that's not good for the wealthy people either. Uh, it creates a lot of problems in our society and it's creating a lot of problems now. In fact, all the, these political divisions we're seeing, you know, I would say at their base, a lot of it has to do ultimately with financial resources. So how is it not good for rich people to be rich? I'm not saying it's not good for them personally to be rich, but it's, it's bad for society in a way. It, mm. it creates political instability. It creates... But well, well, actually, there are there are issues with being very wealthy. I mean, not only is it, it can kind of detract at a certain point from one's happiness, because wealth requires, in a way, like a lot of responsibilities, and tasks, um, and worries, and it's almost like this giant pile of money sits on your shoulder and whispers to you, and says, you know. Hey, you can't you can't lose this. You what, what is it invested in? You know, you start thinking about it all the time, right? Um, in a way that sort of takes people away from the, the authentic experiences in life. I mean, you, when you talk to people who spend a lot of time around very wealthy people, they say there's a lot of loneliness and isolation. Um, there's there's a lot of suspicion of others, um, lack of trust. Even you know within their circles, with in romantic relationships, 
there are a, a lot of problems within families where you know children want more than they're getting or uh children are you know you know highly children from wealthy families are actually at as much a risk or as much or greater risk than low-income kids of you know abusing drugs and alcohol for instance uh, there's kind of an epidemic of substance abuse among wealthy children and part of it is this sort of pressure uh, to you have to do what your parents said you have to succeed and that's too much for a lot of kids yeah my guest is michael mechanic we are talking about this book jackpot how the super rich really live and how their health harms us all you're welcome to join the conversation at 608 256-2001 extension 9 or online at WordFM on Twitter or a public affair on uh, Facebook. So the difference, of course, that um, these kids um, um, engage in substance abuse and um, from what your book says also um, have um, often... Uh, mental health issues, which I guess the two might be um, related, but they don't end up in the prisons that their parents are invested in or are buying, right? <laughs> that's right. That's a, that's a pretty harsh way to put it. But yeah, um, I mean, there, the research has found that that children of wealthy parents are often more prone to antisocial behavior and sort of low-level criminal behaviors than kids from poor backgrounds, which is a surprise, right? Because we think of, we associate poverty with crime. And the fact is the rich kids just don't end up uh, paying the consequences of that. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there's things like cheating and petty theft and just, in, in a way it comes from entitlement i can do anything i want right because i've grown up i've grown up in these circumstances where i'm, I'm not told no you know or i have you know too many resources or i mean you see this among uh, in research on people of higher incomes relative to people of low incomes there is much more of a sense of entitlement and narcissistic tendencies and sort of um, being less attuned to the social needs of others uh, and that all kind of plays into the isolation of the of the wealthy. Uh, they're they're sort of less dependent on others for everyday things, yeah, um, because of their wealth. And that that leads the the less dependence. It's like our community ties are what makes us feel, you know, healthy and whole. And when you those ties are threadbare, you you tend not to be as happy. Now, a lot of this research on wealth does not include the super, super rich because they tend not to participate in research. Uh, but that's, again, that's a, a sign of their isolation. Uh, you know, they, you end up hanging out in, so, in the, this crazy bubble, social circles where everybody has what you have and that becomes your, your normal. Um, and it's incredibly not normal. You know, you, you lose touch with the needs of everyday people. And that's a problem when it comes to, you know, your, the, the, the political influence that you have, because all of a sudden your political priorities are very different from those of the public. And yet the, the wealthy people are the ones who are influencing policy. Mm -hmm. So um, is, is Michael on the air or no? So we have uh, two questions from a uh, listener. The first one is, do you feel that the loss of power of labor unions, especially in the private sector, is partially responsible for this increase in wealth? I think it's the opposite. I think the increase in wealth is responsible for the demise of unions because actually you've had these very powerful interests attacking unions through the through legislation. I mean, we've seen this obviously happen in Wisconsin uh, under under the previous governor. Walker. I mean, Wisconsin, Wisconsin was such a, a powerful union state and really the the seat of the progressive movement in America. A lot of it comes out of Wisconsin, admirably so. 
but I, I, you know, I, I read about what's ha happened in Wisconsin since I left, and it makes me sad. You know, the, the if unions don't stand together. I mean, the, the unions are fighting. You know, this is this is all about money ultimately. Uh, I, I think the the narrative that the you know the corporations and the the very wealthy interests try to play is oh this is about freedom of expression and you shouldn't have to give money to you know they try to take away the the uh, mandatory union dues and things like that and saying it's a free speech issue but uh, you know workers have to stand together if, <laughs> if they're going to get anywhere yeah. I mean we wouldn't have th this weekend enjoy this weekend because unions gave that to you. Well, so it's interesting that um, working people, you know, definitely uh, people who are blue collar, uh, people who are exploited, um, were such a big um, part of the supporters of Trump, not just where, still are. How, how do you understand that? Well, A, people are easily misled. I mean, we've seen this from the January 6th hearings where all of you know the people around Trump knew that this was nonsense, this uh, claim of election fraud, and yet Trump supporters are out there believing it. They took it hook, line, and sinker, uh, and and because I I think that's because the Republicans and Donald Trump have this politics of grievance, and that really resounds with people who feel like they're being left out. Um, it's it's very race based. Uh, and then, you know, as I, the, the research I cited before of, of the people in privileged groups not wanting to give, not wanting people in less privileged groups to have those privileges, I mean, financially speaking, I mean, you see this in people's opposition to, to uh, welfare policies. And that's, you know, that you have an attitude of even if I am getting help from the government, I would rather not have it because I don't want those people over there getting help from the government because mm -hmm. they're, they're the, you know, they're lazy or whatever, whatever you have been led to believe about them. And that's the kind of narrative that Paul Ryan was pushing and that Trump was pushing in a big way. And actually the whole Republican party tends to push. Uh, it's really disingenuous, frankly. Uh, but you know, but we are tribal by nature. It's, this is not all just about politics. It's, it's about, human behavior but it's just easily exploited is what i would say mm -hmm. but i think it's also um we can go back to the coke uh, sort of wealth um there's a lot of wealthy people who are working to basically make education in the united states even poorer than it already is and I think that um, much of that is about making people so uninformed and uneducated that they would um, support people like Trump, that they would vote for things that really are against their own welfare. What, what do you think about that? It's hard to say what the motivation is i mean what you find when you look when you if you ask very wealthy people about their attitudes toward public education there's much lower support um for shoring up public education and there's also uh you you ask whether the government should make sure there's racial parity in education and they'll say no um should should public education be funded you know at high level they say no because we have a two-tiered education system and those wealthy people are all sending their kids into private schools and private education um, and meanwhile the public schools are falling apart because they're underfunded i mean here in california i was just looking we were you know we're 27th in the nation in school funding hmm. and it used to be california used to be a, a beacon of public education you know the the university system here really raised up the state and now it's being neglected. And I, you know, if you look at the public universities here, like the UC system, it's only about ten percent of their their money comes from the public. And it used to be, you know, thirty. Um, 
so it, and this is a state with a big surplus and i'm like why isn't the governor throwing more money into public education instead of giving it out in gas vouchers right um it yeah it's the 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 idea of sort of defunding public education and you know I think the Koch's whole thing is more about indoctrination. I mean, they're giving money to universities to create these sort of free enterprise institutes and get conservative teachings into universities, and that will help kind of further their movement. Um, it's, you know, they, they, there's a, this whole backlash to teaching the history of, you know, the way African Americans have been treated in this country in schools, and yet they want to indoctrinate students with this free enterprise stuff. Yeah, um, it, it seems a little bit uh, hypocritical, right? Yeah. Well, um, our listener had a second question, which is, do you think that violence is going to break out as a result of this increase in wealth disparity? I do not see it happening. Um, I mean, there, it may be isolated incidents of it, but not in a big way. The violence that could break out is, you know, over the the politics, the political, you know, if someone tries to steal the next election and the wrong person gets seated, that's when you might see violence in America. Um, that's what a lot of people are worried about. And I frankly am worried about it too. Yeah. Just the wealth disparities themselves. I mean, we still... I write about this in the book a bunch about sort of what's called mobility optimism among Americans. Sort of we look at we look at wealthy people and there's this American ethos that if you work hard you can get to that level. And so maybe you're not going to complain too much about wealth inequality because you could be rich someday. But the reality is there's very little social mobility in America. I mean, we hear about the rags to riches stories, but they're incredibly rare. We fetishize them. And we think about them and oh yeah that that could be me that's why people play the lottery so uh the last in 2020 we bought 95 billion dollars worth of lottery tickets i mean talk about dreaming right um 95 billion that's a crazy amount we're spending on lottery tickets instead of books and you know whatever yeah. else food um what what happens with this money? Where does it go? The money that goes to a lottery? It mostly goes back into the, the lottery, you know, lottery industrial complex, I guess you could call oh, it. Uh, okay. A small a small amount of it goes to funding public education, usually the state lotteries. But the fact is that state legislators have leaned on lotteries as a a budgetary trick to essentially not fund public education as much as they should be and say, oh, you know, the lottery is going to make it up, right? That's why they let these lotteries in. It's sort of, an, sort of a cop-out, really. Um, there's actually a great book coming out on the history of state lotteries um, called For a Dollar and a Dream, which I, I kind of did a pre-review of it. Uh -huh. But it's, super, it's actually fascinating history. Uh, but I recommend it when it does come out. Uh -huh. Yeah, the question came to me because, like I said, I was just in Israel after quite a few years, and um, I was reminded that practically everything to do with art in, in Israel is supported by the lottery system there, uh, which doesn't doesn't mean that some of the money doesn't go to all kinds of other, um, you know, of, of people enriching themselves, but... Um, much of it goes to um, to support things like art and education, I think. Anyway, we have um, a person on the line, Scott. Um, hi, you're on the line. You're on the on there. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. uh, you were just talking about the education system and the way it's being defunded and the potential reasons why. Uh, it was about. I'd say 10 or 11 years ago, in the wake of the financial crash of 2008, a um, Wisconsin female Republican legislator was on public radio, and she was talking about introducing the idea of you know, um, a financial um, education being introduced as part of the state high school curriculum. 
And um, she said that when she introduced this uh, this idea to the Republican-controlled state legislature, it went nowhere. Mm. And I think mm. the uh, the implication was clear that people who have understanding of how money works are much more difficult to exploit. And that was mm. the primary reason why Republican legislature in Wisconsin had no interest in adding this to the state curriculum. Yeah. I'll take any comments off the air. Thank yeah, you. thank you, Scott. Michael. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, um, I, I think it's a fantastic idea for financial literacy to be taught in public schools. I've actually commented on that myself. I, you know, I feel like my kids, I, unfortunately, I haven't taught them too much about financial literacy. They should all have a required course. I mean, it's probably more useful than a lot of the courses they're going to take in high school. Um, as long as they don't take that knowledge and go out and jump on Robin hood and start, you know, betting on risky stocks, uh, if they have money. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting that, that lawmakers would, you know, lawmakers shoot down all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons, but if indeed they're trying to keep people financially stupid, that would be a, a horrible motivation. Yeah, so staying with uh, legislature, legislators and, and such, um, chapter 13 in your book is uh, titled Capital Hill, which you say the title is not a typo. Um, let's, let's talk about that and how the rich have um, so much uh, credo in um, D.C. And, and one example that you talk about is the lobbying effort behind the very unpopular tax bill that Republicans uh, passed in uh, 2017. Can you, can you talk about that and, and the kind of larger uh, context for that? Yeah, well, this is you know known as the the Trump tax cuts. There was absolutely no Democratic votes in favor. It was just completely party line, essentially done in private by the Republican leaders and just shoved through. And it was a huge giveaway to you know the very wealthy. Didn't do a lot for the middle class, and the lobbying around this was so intense. I mean, just platoons of lobbyists descended on Capitol Hill. And there was a, I think it was Public Citizen did a big report on the lobbying around this bill. And it turns out that there were 11 lobbyists for every lawmaker hmm. on Capitol Hill, 11. So it's just, it was just like a shooting gallery, you know, these guys, everybody fighting for whatever they could get out of it. And so, you know, some of the things they did get, you know, Ron Johnson, I believe, um, He's a he's a the Wisconsin guy, a millionaire you know, he, he, lawmaker. Yeah, he was one of the he was one of the Republican holdouts, and he was holding out for more tax breaks. What's called a pass through business, which he happens to own a lucrative pass through business. Um, so you know he was acting in his own family self interest, but also the self interest of many many rich owners of private businesses in the United States. Um, you know, and beyond that, you know, every, we, there's been like these various COVID relief bills and those were also a feeding frenzy for lobbyists who said, oh, here, this thing is moving really fast. Here's an opportunity to get something in there that, you know, some advantage for my clients. I mean, the, the trouble is that the public doesn't have lobbyists out there working for it. Right. Uh, even, you know, even the, the, um, most wealthy people don't have lobbyists in their employ, but the thing is, it, a lot of what the, the you know the tax policy that enriches rich people more is driven by the the financial industry, the wealth management industry, which does have a lot of lobbyists, and they're growing fat on the fees that they charge wealthy people. So wealthy people say, "Oh, I think think we should be taxed more." You can hear a lot of progressive rich people saying, "We're paying," you know, "I agree, we it's unfair. We're paying too little in taxes." Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm talking, uh, they, they say, well, I'm out here in public favoring higher taxes, so you can't blame me. But in fact, what they're doing is they're having their money managed by these firms, and those firms are lobbying. 
So they're participating in a system that is not going to let let down and not going to close loopholes like carried interest and is not going to increase capital gains taxes to the same rate as we pay on our, our ordinary paychecks. Um, and it's one of the biggest unfairnesses in our tax system is the fact that if you have a pile of money and you invest it in the stocks and the stocks go up, the amount you pay on that profit is far less than what you would pay if you were working for a living. So, you know, you, you have most of us out there just earning a paycheck and paying taxes and the people who already have money are greatly favored by the tax code. And that's not going to change unless you, you know, unless you get the powerful people on board and that's hard to do because they are taking a lot of money from rich constituents. And I'm talking about Democrats as well as Republicans. There's not a big appetite for, you know, going after rich donors to Democrats either. Right. And and I think that's an important point because I want to ask you again about the Republicans. But before we do that, um, I think a lot of Democrats are also beholden to uh, their rich supporters And uh, I actually um, think that our own Tammy Baldwin, who is supposedly a very progressive um, senator, is beholden to the military-industrial complex. She's actually bringing F-35s to Madison, and um, Madison does not want that, by far far and large, but... um, she insists on doing that, which is is not just far from from being progressive. It's going to harm a lot of people here in this town because the noise of these terrible things it has um, it has been shown to um, be very dangerous to people, especially kids, but also adults, and also the pollution that comes with it is very dangerous. So I, I think it is important to remember that it's not only Republicans who who are bought by various uh, wealthy interests. That's right. I mean, the, you know, you, you have some very progressive people in Congress who are fighting the good fight, but then, you know, for the most part, uh, in fact, there's, there's been some research done on the personal wealth of members of Congress and how that affects the way they vote. And they found that among Democrats, the wealthier Democrat, Democratic lawmakers are less likely to vote for uh, policies that would reduce uh, wealth and income inequality, which is really interesting. So just being a being a progressive lawmaker and a Democrat does not make you, you know, uh, do what's right. Yeah. <laughs> frankly. Yeah, and Manchin, of course, is the one we see nowadays, but he's definitely not the only one. But so getting back, we have very little time left and, and so much more to talk about. But um mm. So another um, front that the Republicans really have been working on and succeeded in is gutting the IRS to the degree that they can still um, audit you and I and, you know, people who don't have much money or don't have money, period. But they don't have the kind of workforce that would be able to audit the Trumps, for example. Exactly. It's easy to audit everyday taxpayers. Um, it doesn't take a lot of skill to audit these partnerships and business owners with, you know, zillions of dollars and tax lawyers. They also, yeah, they also hire some of the most sophisticated tax lawyers out there. The, the IRS is completely outgunned when it comes to that kind of expertise. And uh, starting kind of in the 90s, the the Republicans went after the IRS in a big way, just over the years, just chipped away at its funding, chipped away at its funding to the fact that they have a huge brain drain. They just can't enforce high-end audits the way they used to. And I think at the the peak of audit, you know, there's data on how many audits they do of people with 
tax bills, you know, uh, in the like 10 million and over tax bracket. And those audits went from about 23% of their peak under President Obama down to like literally almost nothing lately. Now, I don't know what they've done in the past couple of years, but I know Biden has been basically begging for more funding so that they can enforce the law and force the tax cheating. There's so much tax cheating at the high end. Um, some, you know, it is, it's actually incredible what is actually legal, what has been considered legal in this game. Um, but there's also illegal stuff and the IRS just cannot get a handle on it because they don't have the staff. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to spend some time talking about what, if anything, can be done and how. But just just before that, I want to add another comment about Tammy Baldwin, that it's very unprogressive to support the military industrial complex and through that uh, wars for profit and, uh, you know, a lot of killing, a lot of environmental damage, both right here and the places where these F-35s will be deployed. So, you know, very, very disappointing to have this kind of person as our senator and um, I haven't seen other people going against this, so I don't know if any of our listeners has been thinking about that. I would like to uh, encourage them to do that. But anyway, I, I don't know too much about Tammy Baldwin, but I yeah. will tell you that the intercontinental ballistic missiles, the ICBMs, yeah. which has essentially been found even by the military to be considered obsolete. They're just not strategic weapons anymore same as the f-35 yeah so we're keeping all these icbms because there's something called the senate nuclear caucus it's just a bunch of senators whose states you know they they have their states are where these weapons are made and so forth and they want to keep the money coming in and so they vote to spend trillions of dollars on these ridiculous obsolete weapons yeah, and and again, the F-35s has been shown to have so many problems, it probably can't even really be used in combat, but um, it'll kill us before that, so, you know, <laughs> it'll make profit to some people. Um, so, um, tomorrow is the big uh, Poor People's Campaign rally in D.C. They've been going um, through much of the country and um, organizing people. What, what do you think of this kind of organizing and does it have any chances of success, even as it keeps growing and growing, but considering the power of money in Congress? Well, if I if I recall right, the, the Poor People's Campaign is the one that's run by uh, Barber, right? Yes, uh, yes. Yes. And it probably tends to be a lot of people of color. Yes. Um, so... I, I think you know it's it's a great showing on the progressive side, but they're going to get there, and the Republicans who have the power to sort of stop anything are going not going to respond to that because it, for a lot of them they're not going to see these as their constituents. Uh, and anyway, you know, I, I I kind of see often the the way the Republicans vote is not. It, you know, it's not in the financial interests of their constituents. And yet somehow they keep, you know, convincing people that they have to keep voting Republican in these states because there's such a sort of idealistic, ideal, ideological kind of, oh, you know, Democrats are evil and Democrats are bad and they're the enemy of the state and they're radicals, you know. People believe this stuff and they'll just, for that reason, they'll vote, you know, for people who are going to do things to keep them from getting by. I, I, I don't really understand it. I mean, we've had some amazing protests in this country over the past, you know, couple of years, especially with like the racial justice protests, like massive numbers of people in the streets and people you wouldn't normally expect to be in the streets. Yeah. And yet now we've had this backlash to all, you know, we've had a backlash to BLM and to critical race theory and teaching of, 
and, and also gay rights and trans rights and all this stuff. It's been um, instructive. You know, it's like right when you think the society is making progress, it goes back a few steps. I yeah. guess that's the way history works, right? There's going to be push forward and then back and push forward and then back. But um, yeah, I don't see this Congress really doing much of anything that's, you know, social justice oriented, frankly, because the Republicans are going to kill it and Joe Manchin's going to yeah. kill it. So, so where do you find hope? We have about two and a half minutes. Uh, what is there hope? I don't know. I mean, when I... When I wrote the book, I wanted to sort of end on an optimistic note. And my, you know, where I saw hope was in the sort of awakening of many people who do have a lot of money and the understanding amid sort of the realities of COVID and uh, the George Floyd protests and all this, all these things sort of happening at once. Uh, a lot of people were were changing their at least publicly changing their views and behaviors and they were giving much more money for instance to racial justice causes and publicly coming out and saying things have to change but then you know uh, a couple of years later things have not changed uh, and things have been stymied and all these progressive reforms that, that were being put forth including in you know the build back better bill and all the various legislative language that went into that are just getting stripped out. Um, all the things that would actually make society fairer. So, you know, only the people with the power and the money are going to be able to make those changes. I don't see a big, you know, I, don't, I don't see a French revolution here. Um, like I said, we still have this, we're still divided and we're still, the middle class is divided, you know, politically. So, it's not going to, there's not going to be like a class war. Um, I, you know, I would love to tell you something very optimistic, but yeah, like, I would love to the, amount, the, it, the yeah. hope that I had was, uh, it's been tamped down somewhat. We're gonna have to see what, what happens. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I think if the people with the power can kind of, Yeah, well, like Samer, our engineer, uh, notes the the motto for my show, no change without power, no no change without struggle, no one in power ain't giving up nothing, and, and I think we're seeing it very much. So uh, Michael Mechanic, originally from Madison, now in Oakland, California, longtime senior editor at Mother Jones Magazine. We've been talking about his new book, Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Health Harms Us All. There's a lot more in the book than we were able to get to. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And people can learn more about the book at readjackpot.com. All right. Thank you. And thanks to Richelle and Samer. And thanks again to all of you who uh, donated and pledged and gave us the little money that we need to continue broadcasting. I'm Esti Dinor. Bye-bye.